In January's issue of Faith Today, uh, John Stackhouse wrote an article entitled, Will Christianity Disappear in Canada? He began the article this way. It says this, The Anglican Church of Canada heard a report recently that must have taken away its collective breath. The November report predicted that there will be no members, attenders, or givers belonging to that denomination by 2040, which is amazing because in 1962, at the peak of the Anglican Church in Canada, 7% of Canadians went to the Anglican Church, which was like almost 1.5 million people at the time. It was like 1.3 million people. And so this was is a shock to the Anglican Church, and it's kind of a uh, symptom or an evidence of the secularization of Canada. And so in our passage today, we're thinking about church planting. And before we get started, I just want to point out a few things for us to think out, think about related to church planting. And um, here's, here's the first one. Over the next 10 years, one third of all churches in Canada will close. That's church buildings or organizations. And that is like from Protestant all the way to Catholic. One third will close down. But church planting, second year, church planting always engages younger people. They get energized by it. Church plants, number three, church plants engage those who are on the fence. So, um, you know, 60 to 80% of people that are engaged by church plants are people that were not involved or not in church at all. And, you know, 80 to 90% of people that attend churches that are well-established are uh, churched people. They're uh, church shopping, essentially. They're changing churches, which can be valid, you know, in its own way. Number four, new residents to towns or cities are always reached better by new congregations. Number five, um, new socio-cultural groups in communities are also reached better by new congregations. And then number six, Church planting is healthy for established churches. So uh, Jeff Farmer, who's done his PhD dissertation on church planting and how it affects mother churches, he studied 75 churches of different sizes that were planting and compared those with 75 churches that were not planting. And when he compared both those two, he found that the churches that were planting churches, so mother churches that were sending out New church plants were healthier than those who did not. So in the end, um, you can see here that church planting is super important for the church in general at large, but also for individual churches. And church planting is actually how the Great Commission is accomplished. Now, if you've been a part of Citizens at all, some of this stuff would probably sound familiar because we've talked about these things before. But... The, the good news, the gospel message, which we are called as believers to take to communities, to people, um, so that lives can be changed, is done through the work of church planting and through local churches. And so our story today, the text that we're looking at in Acts 16, is about church planting. It's about lives changed as a result of church planting. And what we're looking at today, actually specifically, is pioneer church planting. And so what is pioneer church planting? Okay, there is, um, 
you know, really simplistically, there's um, two ways of doing church planting. You know, what we're doing as Citizens Church is planting a church in a place where, you know, Elmira, where there are existing good and healthy churches, um, you know, and so birthing a new church is not necessarily something totally new to this area, but it's a part of how God actually builds his church through many good and healthy um, churches that understand the gospel and then those are spreading out to many different communities and people and so it's not like um, you know having too many churches is like having too many Starbucks in one town it doesn't work that way it's all about actually increasing the number of churches that we have because there's there's different people that need to be reached through different churches in different ways and strategies but the other way to do church planting is pioneer church planting work. And that's going into an area where there are no or very few uh, churches at all. And, and most of the time you, you're going into places where there are very few to no believers at all. So, you know, there may be uh, a place like um, what Liz and I did actually when we were missionaries in Guinea was pioneer church planting, like going to West Africa living in a place where there was no local church, no believers, and doing the work of planting a church in that area. So that's a couple of different descriptions of church planting. What we're doing, kind of local church planting from a mother church, but also pioneer church planting. And so in our story today, we see Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are now this church planting team. And God leads them to go to Macedonia through this spectacular vision that Paul has where he is called and it's confirmed through the Holy Spirit that they are to go to Macedonia and begin the work there of church planting. And in the process, um, we see through this chapter that the church in Philippi, the church in Macedonia in that region has begun and we're introduced to that work through these amazing stories of lives that were changed by Jesus. And so we're going to look at each of those lives just briefly uh, right now in our time. And then we're going to uh, see what God is doing in this area in Macedonia. And, and the first life that we see that is changed is Lydia. And so if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 16. And we're going to start in verse 13 and read about Lydia, read a portion of the story. So in verse 13, it says this, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate, that's Paul and, and Silas and Timothy, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be a faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So an amazing story of Paul going to Philippi, and looking for people who are interested in God and somehow he hears about these women who are having like a little Bible study or a little prayer meeting. And we meet this woman named Lydia. 
And so what are, what are a few things that we learn about Lydia? Who is Lydia? Well, first of all, is she's a woman, which is obvious, right? But what's amazing is something that we see throughout Acts and uh, over and over again, we see that women were attracted to the Christian message. So there was a lot of reasons why in Roman culture, women's status was elevated. You know, they could uh, own businesses, they could own homes, they could be active in society. But there is something particularly intriguing about the Christian faith, the Christian message that attracted women to it. And, and even in the next chapter, in chapter 17, we see this come up a couple times in 17 verse 4, when Paul's in Thessalonica, 17 verse 4, it says, And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And then in chapter 17, verse 12, it says, Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So Luke is specifically pointing out that there are women, women of influence often, but women in general that were attracted to the gospel message, attracted to the teaching. And so here we see this happening with Lydia again. And um, interestingly, uh, Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, talks about this, talks about the role of women in the early church. And he says this in his chapter on, on women in, in early Christianity. He says, Amidst contemporary denunciations of Christianity as patriarchal and sexist, it is easily forgotten that the early church was so especially attractive to women that in 370, the emperor, Valentinian, issued a written order to Pope Damasus I, requiring that Christian missionaries cease calling at the homes of pagan women. Christianity was unusually appealing because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed a far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. So, so Rodney Stark is kind of, from his research, he's saying, man, women were attracted to the Christian faith, um, even though they enjoyed uh, liberties in Roman culture and certain freedoms, what they experienced through their understanding of the gospel um, just blew their minds and attracted them to faith in Christ. And ultimately, I think the message that Paul was bringing here was one that he would reiterate in Galatians 3.28, where he says, in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female. We are all brought into this relationship with Christ. All of us um, as image bearers of God come into a relationship with Christ because of the gospel message. And so this early church movement is um, not just something that is, you know, male dominated. It's actually super attractive to women, to men who are brought into a relationship together and, and now then are turned uh, together to uh, be co-laborers for the gospel in the cities where Paul and others are planting churches. But secondly, we see that she's not just, you know, a woman. That's part of her identity. That's who she is. She's also a businesswoman. And um, it says here that she is a seller of purple goods, you know, which, which is during that time was known to be clothing for the rich. That was not clothing for common people that was you know an expensive fabric to buy and we see in the text also that she you know after she's saved she invites them to her household so she's so she's 
from Thyatira, but she has a home in Philippi. So that's pretty good, right? She's got multiple homes, most likely. Um, she invites them to stay so she can afford to have them come and stay probably in some guest rooms, maybe even with some servants. Um, so she is a woman of means. She is a successful woman and has done really well for herself. We see later in Philippians 4 that um, the church in Philippi ended up supporting Paul in his ministry and, and no doubt Lydia was a part of that as well. So she is a successful businesswoman. But thirdly, she's also interested in seeking and knowing God. And so Paul or Luke makes it clear here that she was a woman. She was a worshiper of God. Like she was someone who was curious, kind of like Cornelius in chapter 10, who wanted to know about God, this Jehovah God, um, probably went to the synagogue at times, probably spoke to Jews and was trying to dig into to know and understand who this God was and and wanted to find out, have a relationship and know. And so she's praying. She's having a little Bible study by the river and Paul meets her and shares the gospel with her. But one thing we see really clearly here is that though all these things are kind of a description of who she is, these things are leading to it even makes sense why she would understand the gospel. What we see here is that God was the one who did the work. Look at verse 14 again. It says, you know, she was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God opened her heart and she was changed by the gospel. So once we go from there, um, we see the, the apostles here, this church planting team, they move on and we are introduced to the demon-possessed girl. And look at verse, uh, starting in verse 16, it says this, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who, was, who had a spirit of divination and brought her own, her owners much gained by fortune-telling. She followed Paul with us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. So Paul is introduced to this uh this slave girl who is possessed by a demon, she's tracking with them, following them for days on end, just kind of yelling this message that was even true, what she's saying, that they're, you know, preaching the message um, that these are servants of the Most High God. But finally, Paul just has enough and he casts this demon out of this girl. And so we learn that this girl is a slave. She is enslaved by her owners to give divinations, to... Um, probably speak about the future or about people's lives and she's making them a ton of money. We also see that she's possessed by a demon. So she is not someone, she's not like Lydia. She's not searching for truth. She's not like close, you know, coming close to God and wanting to know more about him. She's far away from God. She is possessed by a demon, um, by her own choices, by the choices of people that enslaved her, whatever her history is, she is far from God. But she also receives this miracle, right? That Paul 
even in his frustration and annoyance, he casts out this demon and she um, is freed from this possession. And, you know, there's, there's some debate, some speculation whether or not she was a believer or not. But definitely this opens the possibility that she could have been a believer, that she was free. Because we see later in the story that she's of no use to her owners anymore. She can't do any of the things that she was supposed to be doing. She's a loss. And even if she doesn't become a believer in the text here, I have no doubt that the, the church in Philippi would have reached out to her over the months and years, knowing her story, and Luke, knowing it as well, records it for us. And so, um, man, what an amazing story um, that they would be able to experience, you know, if she became a believer to, to hear her testimony of being far away from God, super far from God, and yet being freed and released through kind of an amazing set of circumstances. Honestly, when whenever any of us or anybody gets saved, it's a miracle of God that happens before our eyes. And our third person that we meet, the third life that we see is changed, is the jailer. So once the owners uh, find out that this girl, this demon-possessed girl is free, she can't do the work that she's used to be doing, um, Paul and Silas are put in prison, they're beaten, and they're locked up. And then we meet the jailer here, starting in verse 27. It says this, When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then they brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Man, talk about a crazy story. So a couple of things that we see with the jailer when we kind of are introduced to him. The first is that he is just this faithful worker. Often in the Roman Empire, jailers would have been former soldiers. Some of them even returned back and would be kind of in retirement. And to do this, you know, would be just a little bit of a side gig that they could do while they're in their you know retirement years. And so whether or not that's the case with this jailer, we're not sure, but we can see that he is like super faithful. He is like above and beyond in whatever he does. So when they have beaten Paul and Silas, you know, they just say, hey, take these guys and, you know, watch them essentially. And what does he do? He takes them and locks them up in stocks, locks their feet up. And, and when the earthquake comes and they're, released and all the doors are open man he is ready just to kill himself he knows that you know the law is going to be against him as he has allowed these prisoners to go and be free and so they're probably going to judge him or maybe kill him for doing this so he's like i'll just take care of it myself he is like super practical faithful you know worker bee wants to do everything right and maybe on the harsher side of things and yet in that moment, 
The second thing we see is that God radically changes him through this gospel, um, simple gospel presentation. You know, so in a lot of the stories previously, especially with like earthquakes and miracles, God is releasing his workers so that they can get away and they can continue to do their work. But in this case, we see that's not happening, actually. This earthquake is going to bring about the salvation of this jailer. There's going to be a life that is changed as a result of this. And so when the jailer finds out that all the prisoners are still there and that Paul and Silas are still there, he asks them, hey, what do I need to do to be saved? Somehow he saw his need in that moment. What do I need to do to be saved? And Paul and Silas give probably one of the clearest, simplest gospel messages. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And no doubt he did not have a lot of background knowledge or, you know, understanding on all of that. He would, would grow in his understanding of what the gospel was. But in its most simplest form, it was believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And his life is immediately changed. There's like a radical change. And we see that he ends up washing their wounds. Him and his family are baptized. They're eating together, they're enjoying fellowship, and they're just, um, it says in verse 34 that they're rejoicing together. They're rejoicing in what God had done. And in a matter of hours, we see this radically changed life because of the person of Jesus and the faithful witness of Paul and Silas through, honestly, some really difficult circumstances. Like, I haven't really focused on the fact that they were beaten you know, and they were put in, in stocks. Like those are all really uncomfortable and difficult things. So three lives, Lydia, the girl, slave girl possessed by a demon and the jailer here all changed through this work that Paul and Silas are doing. You know, do you have hope and excitement for what God is going to be doing through citizens? Have you begun to think for yourself even the the lives that could be changed as a result of the church plant that we are a part of? You know, the work that God does in planting churches is one life at a time, one story at a time. And that's what we see here in the beginning of the story of the church in Macedonia, in Philippi, is this one life at a time is changed. And these lives cross like the broad spectrum of the world still today you know you've got lydia who would be you know considered almost this like white collar business owner you've got the jailer who's kind of the blue collar get the job done kind of a guy and then you've got this demon possessed slave girl someone on the fringes who is no collar at all she's lost and in desperate need of someone to not only free her but even notice her. And who are the people that God is going to draw out from Elmira or from the neighborhood that you live in? That's not in our little town here. Who will God draw to himself? Who will God use us to share the gospel message with or to, to show the love of Christ to? Who will be uh, will we be rejoicing with together as a church family in six months, a year, in two years? Man, if only we could see that. But the, the stories will happen one life at a time. So 
as we think about those things, let me just remind us of three things for us to know and to hold on to, to remember as a result of our text today. The first is be aware. So let me encourage you to listen to what God is doing around you. Do you hear the Holy Spirit telling you to do certain things or leading you to um, whatever it is, a circumstance, a place, a person? Are you listening? Be aware of what the Holy Spirit is doing around you. Two, be courageous. Okay, so what we see in the story here is that, yeah, Paul and Silas are doing things and Timothy and Luke are there at different times, but ultimately it is God that is doing the work. So be courageous. It doesn't depend on us. We're not the ones who are going to do the internal work that needs to happen, but God will use us. God will use us as instruments as he is doing work in our communities and our workplaces. And then thirdly, be clear so don't give people Christian jargon. Don't give people like a runaround kind of answer. Be clear with the gospel and tell it to people in a way that makes sense and connects to the reality of their life. So sometimes we can, you know, use all kinds of examples or use words that we're not, you know, that are not used in the public sphere. And we're going to talk about this in the, in the next, uh, next week's teaching on how to relate culturally to people. But we need to understand the gospel. And so if you don't understand that clearly, maybe that's the first step for you is like study and understand the gospel and then be clear when we're talking to other people and learn how to do it in, in simple but clear ways so that God can use that. And what we see as a result of this kind of one by one people coming to faith is a church that is on fire and is following God. And in 2 Corinthians 8, we get a little glimpse of it where Paul is collecting money for the church in Jerusalem and the church in Philippi wants to contribute. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 through 4. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in a rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of the Lord's people, and they exceeded in our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and, and by the will of God also to us. So man, Paul's just given testimony to this church that he loved. And he says, man, through suffering, through hardship, they just want to give. They love Jesus and they want to see the church in Jerusalem blessed. And, and this is all the result of Paul and this church planting team going in faithful servants and seeing one life at a time changed. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his messages, let me just close with this. The message was titled, The Waterer Watered. And this is in 1865. He says this when talking about church planting and for the congregations to be involved in church planting. He says, we encourage our members to leave us to found other churches. We seek to persuade them to do it. We seek them to scatter throughout the land so to become the goodly seed which God shall bless. I believe that so long as we do this, we shall prosper. So even though we are, we are young citizens, even though we are uh, a daughter church of Woodside, my hope and prayer is that we would be 
preparing and that we would be praying that God would uh, use us to, to bless Elmira, to bless the local churches, and soon, hopefully, Lord willing, to even plant new churches in our region and beyond. And so we pray to that end and ask God to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for the testimony of these lives that are changed by the preaching of the gospel and by the work that you did. And uh, Lord, I pray for citizens as well, that you would help us to be bold and courageous, putting our trust in you, that you are going before us and doing the work. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that many people would be saved in our area, that people would find a home church with us or with other local churches, and that, Lord, you would allow us to even be a part of your vision of planting churches around this region and even around the world. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.